You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 19th of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Tom Edwards. Coming up on today's programme... I'm here to express my solidarity with the Israeli people. You have suffered an unspeakable, horrific act of terrorism. Britain's Prime Minister Rishi Sunak lands in Israel, hot on the heels of US President Joe Biden, as Israel prepares a ground offensive in Gaza. But what is its endgame? Candidate registration opens to succeed Joko Widodo as Indonesia's president. We'll have the latest. And Monocle's music maestro, Fernando Gustavo will be here with his weekly review of the charts in one specially selected location. Stay with us to find out where we're headed today. All that ahead for you here on The Briefing with me, Tom Edwards. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has arrived in Israel where he's expected to push for aid to be allowed into the besieged Gaza Strip. As he wrapped up his visit on Wednesday, President Joe Biden offered his support for Israel in its war with Hamas, but urged it to avoid the mistakes Washington made after 9-11. His comments come just as Israeli forces are expected to launch a major ground offensive into Gaza. Well, joining us now is Daniel Levy, president of the US Middle East Project, a group of former top officials whose stated aim is to advance a dignified Israeli-Palestinian peace and an end to occupation. Um, Daniel, thanks for being with us on the programme. Can I get some reaction from you, first of all, to the various comments that Joe Biden made? Um, Well, and the overall tone of his trip. What have you made of it? Good to be with you, Tom. Joe Biden, of course, was supposed to both visit Israel and have a summit with Arab leaders uh, in Jordan, and that didn't happen. It was just the Israel part of the visit. And I think the American president was trying to pull off a very delicate balancing act, which was to wrap his arms around Israel, speak about that relationship, that alliance. Part of that is performative politics for domestic consumption back in the US. That was the public side of it. I think in private, it was also to try and get a sense of what Israel's aims are, and how can one prevent an even more devastating civilian loss in Gaza, and the link between that and the likely spillover of this into a much broader conflagration in terms of the the Palestinian-Israeli arena, so that's the West Bank where things, people aren't focused on that, but they've been 65 plus Palestinian killings by by the Israeli military or or armed settlers in the West Bank, and of course, a broader regional conflagration. Now, whether he managed to dance effectively at those two weddings or not, we are yet to see. I worry that Israel will hear the message of support uh, and do what you need as they see it and be far less attentive to the message of pull back. Uh, Don't escalate because what we need now is to de-escalate and dial this down and have a plan for the morning after. And we are not there. The other thing I just say on that, uh, Biden language, and I think this probably applies to British Prime Minister Sunak on his visit as well, is absolutely show empathy, speak to the humanity of Israelis after what they have been through. But I think it's a real sin of omission 
and hugely problematic if they are not able to find language which empathizes with Palestinians and speaks to the tremendous suffering that is going on in Gaza. And it's not good enough to blame that on Hamas because this is, of course, an Israeli blockade and cutting off of, of everything for more than a week now and, and of bombing. So they've, they've got to find that language. And I say that because right now we're in a really dangerous place in terms of discourse. The dehumanizing is taking us to the precipice of hell. And I don't say that lightly. Well, Daniel, I wanted to ask you specifically about that rhetoric, because I find it really interesting. There is this idea, maybe notionally only, that Western key Western stakeholders are talking primarily about the US, but UK as well, as you mentioned with Sunak, are really working hard at maintaining this public-facing loyalty in their language to Israel. Do you think that there is a diplomatic balancing act, which is that by doing that, they're then better placed to ameliorate the Israeli response in Gaza, the response to Hamas, but its corollary effect on the people in Gaza, rather than being more balanced in their language, which could uh, mean that Israel decides, well, you know, we, we don't, we're, we're losing our, we're losing our friends, and we're going to be more aggressive in our response. Do you think that there is a diplomatic balancing act which is manifesting itself in the language we're hearing? Undoubtedly, that that is the playbook that they are pursuing. However, there are three caveats to that, and all of them matter, some more than most. The first is that Israel tends to not be good at listening to the quiet advice. That's that's the experience. That's what history shows. Benjamin Netanyahu is on camera, actually, from some years ago talking about how he wrapped the Clinton administration around his little finger and he knows how to play America. I know how to, he knows how to use what he wants in the relationship and dismiss what he doesn't. Now, this is an Israel that's in shock, that has had a monumental deterrence, intelligence, military failure. And while it wants to reassert dominance, let's say, in that arena, it also is feeling vulnerable. So maybe the attentiveness uh, might be there in ways that it wasn't in the past. What what you and I don't know, Tom, of course, is how how much those sleeves are being rolled up and how much they're leaning in with a message of de-escalate, don't let this spread in the private meetings. The second caveat, which I think is important to point out, is these things have a spillover effect back in our own societies, whether that's the US or the UK, in terms of intercommunal relations. And you know, there are people in this country, there are people in America who care passionately about what's happening to Israelis. There are people who care passionately about what's happening to Palestinians. And I think the job of leadership is to be able to wrap your arms around both of those things, to be able to speak to those communities and and speak about the humanity of the other side. Now, Biden, after the killing of a six-year-old in Chicago, a six-year-old Palestinian Arab American in Chicago, I think has gone somewhere in that direction. I've not heard that from British leaders yet. The third element is, is when we look global. And what does this public positioning do to the US, and I would argue the UK, in terms of how the rest of the world sees us? Because the rest of the world looks at this and saying, says, wait a minute, and, and genuinely the rest of the world, and we saw that in the UN Security Council, where the US vetoed a, a very mild resolution last night, the UK abstained, 
And the rest of the world looks at this and says, wait a minute, if we're going to have a position where you guys talk about international law and the rules-based order, you have to be consistent. We long considered you not to be consistent, to be selective, to be hypocritical. And now here, especially after the position taken and a lot of the moral self-righteous grandstanding that, that much of the world has seen it over Ukraine, here we are, we're seeing you exposed and you are not standing by what you claim. And I think that's quite devastating in a, in a world of shifting geopolitics that's quite devastating for the US and its Western allies. Uh, Daniel, just briefly, I wanted to ask you finally, uh, I, I know you've had um, first-hand experience in terms of peace talks before. You've advised uh, governments, of course, I think the government of, of, of Ehud Barak in the past. Um, looking at the potential ground offensive, g- given that proximity that you've enjoyed previously, do you have any better sense? I don't want to ask you an impossibly sprawling question, but what the kind of Israeli endgame could, could look like if that ground offensive does indeed go ahead because obviously there are certain observers who say look this is going to entrench positions it's going to deepen divides which are already uh chasmic in their in their proportions do you have a sense of what the actual not even longer term but just medium term objective might be uh, from from the israeli standpoint tom it's obviously something i'm i'm trying to wrap my head around and i don't think that is coming into view yet at this stage. I think the Israelis have now had a period of time to to develop what this is about, but this is an Israeli system rocked to its foundations, a, a leadership, all of whom know that when the dust settles and the commission of inquiry begins as to what happened on October 7th, they are going to look appalling. And I there's an element here flailing around trying to work out what what gives them the upper hand and what gives them a a credible storyline especially at the political level especially prime minister netanyahu um for the morning after so some they, they talked about wiping out hamas i think they will try to do that i don't see how that is uh done in the broader sense of it one has to remember that one of the things we're facing is that the Palestinian political movement that committed itself to diplomatic negotiations, ending armed struggle, even in a situation of occupation, and went down the Oslo path, has been made to look ridiculous because nothing was delivered for them. So the PA in the West Bank is largely absent. No one's really listening to our, to our bus. So Hamas, not because people are bloodthirsty, but because the alternative was shown to fail, Hamas is popular, there's not going to be that vacuum in uh, in Palestinian politics. I think the Israelis may try and take a part of Gaza. They may try and move on some West Bank towns. They may decide that this is the time, despite the advice they're getting, to also address the, the, the threat coming from Hezbollah. But I think though a lot of those things are still in the balance, they're still testing what their own public is ready for, what the world is ready for, and what their military is capable of. Uh, Daniel, it's terrific to have your insights. Thank you so much for being with us today. That was Daniel Levy joining us here on The Briefing on Monocle Radio. (laughs) 
Let's head to the West Bank now, where there have been clashes between the ruling Palestinian Authority and protesters who've demanded Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas step down. Demonstrators were angry about the deadly explosion at the Gaza hospital, which Palestinians blamed on Israel, but also at what they saw as Abbas's weak response to the incident. Well, Ruth Michelson has been reporting on the protests, and she joins us now from East Jerusalem. Good afternoon, Ruth. Um, Tell us a bit more about what exactly triggered these protests. Well, we saw that um, the, the the same evening that uh, the strike on the hospital happened, uh, that there were uh, hundreds of, of Palestinian youth that went out into the centre of Ramallah and clashed with um, Palestinian Authority uh, security forces, and to the extent that... Um, the following day, when I was when I was walking around Ramallah, still broken glass on the floor, lots of efforts to to clean up what had happened. And one of the um, one of the people that I was speaking to described the situation the previous night as a war zone. Um, and the, you mentioned it that there were chants demanding um, that uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the president um, of and the head of the Palestinian Authority, that he stepped down. There was a sense of quite widespread discontent with how he had responded um, to this incident in particular and more broadly um, to uh, the Israeli bombing of the Gaza Strip. Well, yeah, let me ask you a bit about the, the, there were various planned meetings, weren't there? I wonder, Abbas, I think, sort of uh, stepped away from some meetings that were planned with Biden, etc. Did, did those kind of moves, did that gain him any any credence in the West Bank, do you think? That wasn't uh, what people said when I spoke to them about it. I mean, there were a few people tended to be slightly older, people who might have um, a family or social connection to people within the Palestinian Authority, um, which is based out of Ramallah. Um, But in general, especially when you speak to younger people, um, the way they phrased it, the word credibility came up all of the time. And I said, you know, is there anything that he could do to kind of uh, be responsive to the needs of people on the street, the kind of people that are going out to protest. And he and they said, no, you know, he's he lost. What somebody said to me was he lost his opportunity, um, both in terms of um, responding, um, being a representative of the Palestinian people in light of Israeli the Israeli bombing of Gaza, which has killed uh, well over three thousand people. It's wounded over uh, well over twelve thousand people, I think, um, according to some of the latest figures that we've seen in recent days. And young people, especially, just said he his response has been totally lackluster, um, and that then in response to um, the 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 hospital. Um, the tragedy at the hospital that has killed hundreds more Palestinians in Gaza, um, that then that he he didn't respond well to that, um, even though he has made statements about it. He he called it he said that it was um, a hideous war massacre. I think there was a sense from people on the ground that it, his response was just simply too little, too late. Well, yes, and I guess this is the point, which is that a general dissatisfaction with Abbas, uh, that's not new. There's been anger and frustration at him for some time. But given that backdrop, um, what recourse do people in the West Bank have to potentially call for his removal or to remove him to challenge the the Palestinian Authority? I mean, there's not really that many options available, are there, Ruth? 
No, I mean, there certainly are um, people who were formerly in the PLO, like uh, Dr. Hanan Ashrawi, who's spoken out against just how long Abbas has been in power. It's not necessarily one of the, the hallmarks of his rule. I mean, he's been in, in post for almost 20 years. Um, he is 88 years old and he's seen as this rather withdrawn leader. He's repeatedly declined to hold elections. And one of the other hallmarks of his rule is that he hasn't uh, really allowed younger generations of political leadership or activists to rise up within the ranks either of um, his political party, Fatah, or the Palestinian Authority. So it's not like there are alternatives um, among uh, younger generations of politicians that he could point to um, and, you know, that there could be an election and that there would be a, a smooth transition of power. He has held on to the power, what little power he has for so long. And people on the street accuse him of ceding far too much power uh, to Israel within a system that uh, multiple human rights groups, Human Rights Watch, Betzalem, uh, an Israeli human rights group, define as an apartheid state. Um, and so this has lost him an enormous amount of, of credibility on the ground. And he has also prevented potential successes from coming through. Ruth, uh, great to have your insights as always. That was Ruth Michelson joining us from East Jerusalem. Right now, let's cross over to Cece Armstrong. She's standing by with the day's other news headlines. The United States will lift some sanctions on Venezuela after its government and opposition parties agreed to hold elections in 2024. Caracas will be allowed to export oil, gas and gold to American markets for the next six months. In Washington, the House of Representatives is scheduled to meet on Thursday amid a stalemate over its next speaker. Hardline Republican Jim Jordan failed to win his party support after a second round of voting on Wednesday. Nokia will cut up to 16% of its workforce to save costs after sales fell by a fifth. The Finnish firm and its Swedish rival Ericsson have seen revenues drop as Europe and the US invest less in 5G technologies. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Tom. Thank you very much indeed, Cece. We'll have more headlines for you at the top of the next hour. Uh, next, though, on the briefing, we are looking to President Yoko Widodo. Election season has begun in Indonesia as registration opens for candidates in next year's race. In February, the world's third largest democracy will determine who succeeds the incumbent after almost a decade in power. Well, let's get more on this now. We're joined by Erin Cook in Jakarta. She's a journalist and the author of Dari Mulut Kemulut, a newsletter about Southeast Asia. Um, good evening, Erin. Thanks for joining us on the programme. Tell us, yeah, who, who are the runners and riders that we know about so far? So we've got three big ones and what's interesting, three big candidates. And what's interesting about these guys is they're all very, very closely connected with, with the incumbent, Jocko Widodo, who's known more popularly, popularly as Jokowi. Uh, so today, first day of... Um, nominations. We had two of the major candidates, Anis Baswedan, who was formerly a education minister under Jokowi, turfed out of cabinet in kind of tricky circumstances and then became governor of Jakarta. Um, and we also had Ganja Pranowo, who is the governor of central Java. He nominated and he's also a member of Jokowi's party, PDIP, which uh, is creating some tensions because by the end of the election uh, registration period, we should see Jokowi's defence minister and former two-time challenger, Prabowo Subianto, nominate for, um, for president as well. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you about uh, Defence Minister Subianto because it is the third, I think, am I right in saying the third tilt at the presidency, uh, defeated, of course, by Jokowi twice. Um, better chances this time around, in your view? 
Uh, well, this always gets forgotten. So it's his third go as president, but he has also tried to uh, get up as vice president as well uh, with previous president, uh, Megawati Sukunaputri, years and years ago. Um, this time around, it's looking pretty good for him. He's, uh, he's polling either miles ahead or close but on top. Um, against the other two candidates. So he's definitely looking better than he had in 2014 and again in 2019. The the difference this time around is that uh, Jokowi has been immensely popular since 2014 and at this looks like he'll remain immensely popular forever. Um, and he is putting his weight behind Prabowo. So that may get him across the line this time around. Yeah, no, no, I always find it interesting to see sort of broader collateral, what the implications are. Obviously, Indonesia, it's a huge, well, it's a huge country geographically. It's a huge economy, really important regionally. Is this one of those elections where there are other people in the region who'll be looking on with a particular vested interest? What are some of the key narratives if we get a region wide view? That's a really interesting uh, question this time around. It seems that um, because of Jokowi's immense popularity, he has these uh, this power to sort of uh, anoint his successor, so to speak. So there is sort of this view that we'll see a lot of policy continuity across the board, whether that's foreign policy. Um, Defence might be different under Prabowo since that's sort of his baby, um, but definitely in finance and economics, we should see kind of the ship staying straight. So for ASEAN, um, which Jokowi uh, was the chair of this year as as the Indonesia head, um, that could be good news or it could be still a bit of, uh, they didn't quite get, you know, Myanmar sorted out or all the human rights issues fixed up. But it could be kind of a, a safe hand on the on the wheel for the next few years. Yeah, really interesting narratives there, Erin. Um, Thanks for making sense of them for us. That was Erin Cook in Jakarta joining us here on The Briefing. That is the sound signature that means it's Thursday. It's time to wrap things up with this week's Global Countdown. Here with me, of course, is the one and only Fernando Augusto Pacheco. It's going to be hard beating last week's one, Tom. That's all I can say. It was pretty special. And we should just say, musically, what a journey you've been on this week already. Last Saturday, then this past Tuesday night, a double whammy of Madge, Madonna, Faye, just quickly to follow up. It more than lived up to expectations, as I understand it. Absolutely. Her best tour since 2006. It was a very special, emotional one. And I have to say, Tuesday had even better seats. So I was very happy with that. Jolly good. And Faye was positively, yeah, tripped into the studio (laughs) uh, the, the, the next day, loving it. Today, will we leave as delighted when we've completed the latest iteration of the Global Countdown? Fernando... Where are we headed? We are heading to Iceland, which is a very interesting country, Tom. Although their population is very small, I think they have quite a rich music history. Of course, we know Björk and and some other artists as well. It's quite a fun top five. I think varied, a lot of different genres. There's one, I think, international song between them. You can enjoy it. There's even a little bit of a Tom Edwards connection here. I mean, maybe I'm exaggerating, but let's see. Let's (laughs) see. I'll be the judge (laughs) of that. And we should say, of course, our uh, foreign desk crew from right here in Midori House, they're, they're literally in Iceland right now. They're in Reykjavik. They've inspired me. I've got to be honest. I've got to be honest. And will there be any bluegrass? Because that's what Andrew Muller would like to hear. <laughs> Probably not. I don't think so. But if you're interested in 
Icelandic trap. Uh, you're in for a treat. Uh, okay. I mean, this song is by a rapper. I mean, rap trapper. Can I say trapper? Uh, uh, you can say it. I, mean, I don't know what you or anyone else means. <laughs> uh, it's a very sleek song. I mean, it's trap, but it's also there's some elements of hyper pop. So a lot of vocoders and kind of electronic sounds. It's a bit mad. This is Isi with Adur Fir, which means before. Hello, Vinkona, and our looks inside our heart of fear. So we're thinking that any can look as far in a fight of fear. Hello, Vinkona, for us, I think it's a shock. Do you wait up to us for a half of me? Shall I fear? Yes, I look so now. Yeah, in our cook, no more looks and fear. It gets better, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, everything's relative. He keeps saying something fey. He's not talking about you, is he? Oh, probably that's that's the name of the song, Adur Fur. Fur. Maybe that's my Icelandic oh. that is not very good. It could be. Yeah. You mean you're not fluent? Exactly. And what's he uh, What's he wanging on about in that one? Well, he is, I think, one of the, the, the biggest stars in Iceland right now. Uh, and it's funny, as I said, the video is quite slick. There's the cars, there's a kind of a, almost kind of a gangster rap vibes to it. But he was wearing a fluffy pink onesie. That's, that's what the kids call it, right? Oh, so okay. there's a sweetness to him as well. Uh, to be honest, that's all I could find about Isi. <laughs> so I mean, it, it's interesting. I, Iceland is is a funny one because, of course, all the other Nordic countries. There's so many to read about, but some Icelandic artists. It's it's quite very much for the internal market. So, and I think Isi is a classic example of that. Interesting. Maybe it could be the next big breakout star out of Iceland. Uh, what's next on the list, Fernando? Well, I just mentioned I'm going to contradict myself because number four, she is a massive artist uh, in Iceland. So much so that. She's performing actually in London tomorrow at St. Pancras Old Church. So if you're there, I mean, you're in for a treat. I mean, her album, which uh, this song we're going to hear, that's one of the singles, has been, I mean, it is the most streamed album of all time in Iceland. It's been released in 2012. It's still in the charts. It's been the most streamed album last year in 2021, in 2020. Icelandics, they're obsessed with it. I think because it's kind of a lullaby collection. So it's good for kids. There's something quite sweet about it as well. Uh, but it's interesting that this album from, you know, 2012, it's still very much in the charts over a decade. Uh, it's, it's, an, it's a remarkable story. Extraordinary number. It's very sweet. Is it sweet enough to have any pink onesies in it? Or are we talking about a different kind of lullaby vibe? Different kind of lullaby vibe. And this song is, uh, the singer is Half This Huld, and the song is called I Stay in a Palace of Dreams, or as they say in Icelandic, Dvel Ag i Drownhall. <laughs> Let's have a listen. <laughs> Positively soporific. Exactly. Well, you know what? Maybe it's popular because all parents are, are probably playing this song for their kids before they go to bed That's a good every child. day. And know? I think that would be effective. I nearly nodded off uh, listening. That's an extraordinary 
story of enduring success. And, and her career is very remarkable. In the 90s, she used to be a member of a, an Icelandic electronic band called Gus Gus. They had some international fame. I think Bjork remixed for the band as well. But now I think she's solo. To be fair, it's been a while since she released new music, but I think she's very... Why bother, Faye? <laughs> exactly. If it's stopping the charts. She's still number four, Just for God's sit, sake. enjoy it. And you can play at St. Pancras Old Church as well. But that will be quite vibey, won't it? In the church, you can imagine this kind of sound. It's autumn vibes as well. So, um, but bring yeah, bring a bring a bring a blanket. You might have, <laughs> exactly. to have a little. I'd be sleeping through it. I'm sure. Uh, what what's next? <laughs> Number three. It's the only kind of international track. It's from Canada. It's Drake, of course. And I have something to say about Drake. I hope it's not too controversial. I'm not a fan. <gasps> you know, but he is. I mean, one of the biggest stars at the planet. And this song that we're going to hear is the number one global song of the moment. I mean, he released a new album. And that's a funny one, Tom, because the album is called IDJ, IDGAF. I had no idea. I had to I had to go to Google. I mean, is, is it common? Everybody should know? I, I, I think I know what the acronym means. Does it mean he's not overly bothered about things? Exactly. I think he's yeah. quite, you know, as you rightly said. Shall we have a listen? I mean, let's see what he's been uh, harping on about <laughs> exactly. with this one. Very glitchy. Is, yeah, why, <laughs> why are you not such a fan, though? I mean, I think listeners that just heard that short extract maybe will have a fair idea, but I mean, tell me. I just don't like his voice, to be honest. Uh, yeah, but, not unreasonable criticism. Yeah, but, but I, I do admire. And to be fair, I love the sample he used at the beginning of this track. And I was very confused, Tom, because it's from a British band called Azimuth. Or Azimuth. And then I was like, oh, clearly they're Brazilian, because we have actually a Brazilian band known internationally as Azimuth as well. They're the same name, but different bands. Oh, uh, very confusing. It sounded uh, a little bit like our friend from the previous number. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that, that was number three. Okay, Drake, he gets everywhere. Uh, let's move on then. Number two. two. That's a funny one. I mean, they, it's an Icelandic boy band. I think they're fairly new. Perhaps it's just their second album or so. It does feel like Backstreet Boys in their 90s era. So it's very poppy. Uh, they're very handsome. They do the choreographies. And they're called the Ice Guy. Oh I mean, Ice yeah. Guys finished last. And Faye, how bad is this going to be? Well, prepare me for it mentally, please. I love it. I think it's very poppy, you know, very, very good. And I'll tell you a little bit more about the members, which is quite interesting. The song's called uh, Krumla, which means crumble. So 90s, it hurts. I mean, I was going to say, that is like 25 years just never happened. And the, their tour is like a new ice age has begun, you know. I, lo I love that. And, and the members, I mean, we have pop singers, rappers and football players as well. So 
actually the most handsome of them all. I mean, he's very much the star of the band. His name is uh, Rurik Gislason. I mean, he played for Iceland in 2018 when they were actually in the World Cup, uh, which I believe As was in Russia. he fully played yes, for Iceland? he did. Uh, but now, you know... But this has suddenly got more interesting to me. Exactly. That, that's the Tom, Edwards, Tom Edwards connection oh, I here. I see. Um, well, I, that was when they knocked... Helped knock England out, wasn't it? I, I believe so. I mean, it's been a while. But yeah, yeah. that was the big, the famous the, uh, Viking clap stuff and all that. I mean, he Delia. does look like a Viking, uh, uh, Rurik. And I think, you know, and then I think he did the Let's Dance, a dance competition in Germany. Okay. He became super popular so on social media. So he's reinvented himself. Yeah, now he's one of the ice guys. The I'm, I'm sure he guys. plays football time to time, you know. Maybe just to kick around with friends. <laughs> exactly. It's always good to have something to fall back on if the ice guys... Doesn't work out, but it sounds like they're going gangbusters. But he's not the only footballer in music. In fact, the number one song, they're both footballers. Uh, one of them, uh, I mean, I think he plays for a Norwegian club, but he also was part of the Icelandic national team. I think he was playing even last year a friendly against Saudi Arabia. So I love <laughs> the Classico. <laughs> the Classico. I mean, who would have wanted to see that? Uh, and, and the other singer, Patrick, as well. Uh, I don't know which football club. Maybe he's not the best footballer out there. I'll look into this, Fernando. Yeah, exactly. So he's, in, he's reinvented himself. And what's his style? Boy band vibes? Bit of a crooner? That's what are we bit, talking about? It's quite poppy. Perhaps not as 90s pop as the one before, but I think it's a very good tune. And number one is Patrick and Luigi with Skina, which means shine. And Patrick, besides being a footballer, he's known, I don't know why, in Iceland as pretty boy. I mean, he's, he's pretty, and there was a picture on the internet of him half naked on a bathtub. I don't know. How I mean, many... can do it, Faith. Exactly, exactly. And what are they singing about there? I could hear Scooter, a Moschino, Mosquito? No, it's it's very strange. Skina, I think that's the title, which means shine. Oh, so to shine. Here, so yeah. it's very bright. It's, it's, it, unfortunately, they're not singing about scooters. Okay. I think they're just singing like a pop song about love and then shine. What Faith, an interesting top five. That is uh, deeply compelling. That that felt like the last 15 years had never happened. I thought that was quite kind of noughties, vocoder, pop. An interesting selection, as I often do. If you could only choose one, which would you take of that lofty top five this week, Faye? I'll take you. I'll take one of the ice guys with me, so for yeah, sure. Okay. That, that's the one. That that's wasn't exactly one. what I meant. <laughs> that'll do, Faye. Thanks for candor, as always. Uh, that with a, a top draw global countdown. Uh, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Faye, thanks for being on the programme. And that is all for this edition of The Briefing. The programme was produced by Lillian Fawcett in Singapore and C.C. Armstrong here in London. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Tamsin Howard. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. That's noon London time. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>